Many of you know my guest today, Cynthia Thurlow. She is the host of the Everyday Wellness Podcast. She is also an expert in intermittent fasting. She wrote the book, Intermittent Fasting Transformation, the 45-day program for women to lose stubborn weight, improve hormonal health, and slow aging. But today, we're kind of focusing more on the ladies. We're focusing on that perimenopause, menopausal state and how menopause is indeed a disease state. Did you know that? Did you know that the loss of hormones is not just a natural thing that women go through, it's an actual transition into a disease state, which brings forth many other different diseases of aging. So we're gonna talk about that today. And we're gonna talk about things that you can do to slow that process, to eradicate that process, and to help all of the symptoms that go along with that process, such as insomnia and lack of muscle tone and brain fog, and even memory and cognition issues as we age. So enjoy my podcast today. Cynthia and I always, always have amazing conversations, but this one is for the books. Cynthia, I'm so excited to have you back today. We always have the best conversations. Our last one was really focused on Hashimoto's, but today I want to focus more on perimenopausal and menopausal women, because that's what you are really building a, a community and a network and a YouTube channel to really help to educate these women that are in that space of perimenopause, menopause, hormonal changes all over all of the symptoms that go along with it. Like we know the hot flashes and the muscle loss and the brain fog, and they can't think they can't concentrate. They can't sleep. So I love that you are really honing down and helping this group of women because my listeners out there that can resonate, they're thanking you too. So thank you again for coming on. And I'm really excited for our conversation today. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me back. And I think on so many levels, I was one of those women that was lost, that was underserved, that felt like their kind of traditional allopathic GYN was offering me options that were not acceptable in my world. I didn't want to be on oral contraceptives. I didn't want to be have an IUD. I didn't want an ablation. I didn't want a hysterectomy. And there were just limitations to that traditional allopathic path. And it's not to suggest that allopathic medicine is a bad thing because obviously mm. I, I survived a long hospitalization in 2019 due to the ability to have urgent and emergent care. But in terms of looking at aging and women, we do a really crummy job of helping women prepare and plan for the stages of their lives. And I think there's a lot of focus on younger women, which is appropriate, but if we spend 40% of our lives in menopause, doesn't it make sense for us to be prepared, not, not to fall off a cliff and be become irrelevant and to suddenly not feel like our needs are being met? And so that's why I feel so passionate about helping women navigate this time period with education and knowledge so that they can be empowered to make decisions for themselves. I love that. So what, I mean, you come from the allopathic world as a nurse practitioner. What do you think? Is it just because that's what, the allopathic world is taught, hey, this is a natural, normal thing for women to go through. Hormones are going to change and you just have to tell ladies, hey, this is just part of the aging process. You need to suck it up and deal with your symptoms. Well, if I reflect back on my pre-med classes and then my nursing classes and then my nurse practitioner classes, which I trained at one of arguably one of the best medical schools and institutions in the United States, if they taught me little to nothing, about 
menopause. I mean, forget perimenopause. I didn't know what that was until I tripped and fell into it. And I would watch my patients that were in their late thirties, early forties, all struggling. And I didn't understand why, you know, in cardiology, we were not the least bit concerned with hormones other than the ones that, you know, drive cardiac function, et cetera. But I started observing consistent patterns that I didn't understand. And I really didn't understand them until I myself was in my early 40s. So I think it is a rift in the education process because traditional allopathic medicine is very symptom oriented. So you get a symptom, whether it's weight loss resistance, whether it's insomnia, and they're going to address that but they're not going to be looking at the root cause. What's the root cause of this weight loss resistance? What's the root cause of your insomnia, which very likely at that stage of life is a little bit of low progesterone and probably very likely this, you're losing this buffering of stress resilience. And so cortisol can play a huge role in insomnia as well as, you know, these changes in sex hormones. So to your point, I think that most allopathic trained providers just don't realize that there is this other, you know, kind of integrative approach. And I, I think that we can all work together to help support our patients. And there, there is a need for traditional allopathic medicine. There is a need for a functional approach because a lot of people, and in particular women are really, really underserved. I can't tell you how many women reach out to me and my team on a daily basis. I'm sure this happens for you as well, who have the same symptoms. I can't sleep. I can't lose weight. I feel frumpy. I'm fluffy. Why all of a sudden do I have these weird cravings? Why am I no longer tolerant to drinking alcohol? Why am I exhausted all the time? And helping them understand it's not that you are incapable. It's that we have to kind of reflect differently on how we lead our lifestyles. And if you can dial in the lifestyle and do it in a way that makes you feel good and allows you to have energy and allows you to sleep well and allows you to have good digestion, then that's perfect. But I, but I think for a lot of us, that are in this space, we have the benefit of being able to work with incredibly talented providers. So, you know, one of our mutual friends, Aaron Hartman, is now my, you know, functional medicine doc. And I said, for the first time in three years, my thyroid function is totally pristine, but it took kind of a different lens, a different perspective, you know, looking at things a little bit differently. And so I think for every woman that's listening to this podcast, to understand that there is a way to wellness in this stage of our lives. We don't have to subscribe to this limiting belief that you're going to be, you know, 40, flatulent, frumpy, feeling like, you know, your gallbladder is attacked all the time, that you can't sleep anymore, that you, you know, suddenly you're wearing pants that are three sizes bigger than what you normally do. And you just don't have the energy to do a lot of the things you love to do. I don't think that has to be the path. And so my hope in the work that I'm doing is helping women understand what they're capable of and then finding the right providers to work with. Because I that's 99.9% of the issue is women getting access to providers that can help give them the answers they deserve to have. So now you're working with someone that has actually got you optimized, but in looking at you, right? And I'm sure you get this from your listeners and from your clients too. How could you have possibly suffered with anything, Cynthia? You look perfect. You look like the beacon of health. You're the perfect <laughs> way. You're, you're beautiful. You're shiny. You're glowing. You look like you have all the energy in the world. You're running a successful business. You have an amazing podcast. What were your symptoms? Yeah. So it was around 2015, 2016. And it started with, I was so tired. I couldn't get out of bed. And in my mind, I was like, I'm not depressed. What's going on? So I couldn't, I had no energy. I was still doing really intense workouts, but I wasn't putting the pieces together that maybe 
the not getting enough sleep and maybe too restrictive in terms of carbohydrates, because I was pretty low carb at that time. You know, I was paleo, but pretty low carb and very physically active and had a really stressful job. And my husband traveled a lot. So it was really the responsibilities of a family really falling predominantly on my shoulders, probably five days out of the week. And the kids were younger. They were a lot younger. And so for me, it started with the fatigue and then it led to the weight loss resistance. And I was like, what in the heck is this? And I was like, oh, I know what I'll do. I'm just going to exercise more. I'm going to restrict those carbohydrates. I'm just going to, you know, do all the things that I used to do that worked and it just made it worse. And so for me, my functional medicine person at that time tested my thyroid. And the first thing she said, because as I was explaining all of this to her, very sympathetic nurse practitioner, she said, your thyroid is like non-existent. Like, no wonder why you don't feel good. And my first reaction was, I don't want to be on medication. And so she honored that. And we did all the cofactors like, oh, you need magnesium and you need iron and you need this and you need that. I did all that. And six months later, I went in to see her and I said, uh, I can't, I can't do this for another day. I need medication. I'm like, I, I feel like to me, I can't function as a human being, being this tired. And so starting medication, I felt better pretty quickly. And I was very stable on that medication until nature thyroid was discontinued or unavailable three years ago. And so for me, it was really this journey of like, oh, I'm going to go on thyroid medicine and then I'm going to lose the weight. Nope. <laughs> so it then became a larger elimination diet and then really dialing in on the sleep quality, the nutrition, doing the right types of exercise for an entire year, Amy. I didn't take a conditioning class. I didn't go to the CrossFit type classes. I didn't run. I walked for an entire year. My adrenals were so thrashed that, I mean, my cortisol, I don't want to say it was flatlined, but it was so depressed that my body thought I was running a marathon 24 seven. And so the first thing I had to do is dial back. And I could tell if I went for a walk outside and I came home and I felt good, I was like, okay, today my body could handle that much physical activity. And then some days I would go out and do that walk and I would come home and eat a nap. And that was the sign for me that if I was tired after exercise, then there was something that was not right for me. And so that was the start of the awareness of the things I needed to change and the very last piece of the puzzle for the perimenopause fluff was dairy. Even though I didn't eat much, when I pulled dairy out of my diet, I lost the last five pounds. And when you're short, like you and I are both petite, five pounds can make a big difference. I know listeners hear that and they're like, that's not a lot, but 10 pounds on me was a lot. And it was five pounds I just could not get rid of. And I kept saying, I eat like raw milk dairy twice a month. And so my functional medicine provider said, why don't you just pull dairy out? Because you've already done gluten, you've already done grains. And dairy was probably the hardest thing to pull out of my diet because you just don't realize like how attuned we are to a little bit of Parmesan cheese here. And maybe you were having ice cream occasionally. And, and then all of a sudden, maybe you're having yogurt. And actually that I call it the five pound dairy. That was the missing link for me personally. And when I removed that in 2018, that's the last bit of that fluff I lost. And I remember saying to myself, now that I'm this aware of how much inflammation this particular category of food created in my body, this is why I think it's so powerful for people to understand that it all starts with food. Like we can talk about the sleep and we can talk about stress management and we can talk about exercise, but helping people understand that what we have at the end of our fork is the most powerful bit of information that we can provide our bodies without question. And so I've been able to convince many women. And I tell you, dairy is, is the most addictive 
food-like substance by far. I have a 15-year-old right now who is pulling dairy out of his diet because it's impacting his skin. And he's of an age where his where you know physical appearance is very important to him. And for the first two weeks, he was really struggling. And I told him, I said, if you understand the physiology of what goes on in our brains when we consume dairy products, you know, there's casein morphine compounds that light up our brains and they're very, very addictive. I mean, now he's on the other side, but it's been interesting to watch that. So even a 15-year-old removing that from their diet is as challenging as it is for an adult. And I grew up Italian, you know, we had hard cheese like Pecorino Romano. I mean, it was just kind of common. You put it on like everything. And for me, it's like, now I have no desire to consume cheese at all. And I have no desire to consume milk and I don't miss ice cream. But I remember how hard it was those first couple of weeks because it's it's something that just becomes so ingrained. Like, oh, I'm just going to grab a piece of cheese. Well, now, now you're not going to grab a piece of cheese because you know what it's doing to your body. It doesn't make you feel good. And so I think it was Dr. Will Cole who said, removing the foods that don't love us back. And I think that's such an important concept. There are foods that we love to eat, but they make us feel really crummy. And you have to really decide for yourself, is that food worth it to feel the way that you do an hour, two hours, three hours after? And in most instances, it isn't. It's like, okay, let's find a substitute. <laughs> let's find something that can take the place of that. And then, you know, kind of re-engineer how that works for us in our in our lifestyles. I am so excited that you mentioned this because I've I've been on a little bit of a quest in the last few episodes where I've really focused on the nutrition piece because I think too often, and I see this with my patients as well, we hear, well, I'm eating perfectly. I'm eating right. I'm eating clean, quote unquote. And until you start, number one, writing things down and really tracking and seeing in front of you exactly what is going in your mouth and exactly what those macros are. And I get it. The tracking can be triggering for some people, but sometimes you need that dose of reality to really see, like, if you think that you're getting in 120 grams of protein and you're getting in 60, that's mm -hmm. eye-opening. If you think that you're getting in 50 grams of carbs because you're trying to stay low carb to lose those last five to 10 pounds, but you're really taking in a hundred carbs. I mean, that's a huge discrepancy. And now you're mentioning the dairy and that's very interesting because, and one of the things that you said, I want to kind of expand on, these are the foods that don't love us back. You might feel crummy, but also you might not feel crummy or have a symptom or break out like your son's breaking out until the next day. So you don't really piece that together in your mind that, oh, it was the yogurt I had yesterday. Or it was mm -hmm. that piece of cheese that I had. You tend to almost forget about dairy because like you said, Cynthia, it's so much a part of our day-to-day -day life. You go to the restaurant, you, there's cheese on your salad. I mean, come on, there's butter on the table. There's cheese on the salad. There's cream in the soup. I mean, we're exposed to dairy all the time, but would you agree that sometimes you might not even notice it until the next day? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think the other thing is a lot of these foods that are subsidized by the federal government are the foods that proliferate in the restaurant industry, the processed food industry, and dairy is one of them. There's a surplus of dairy and that's why it's in everything. So I think for a lot of people, it's building that awareness. When I talk about a Whole30, and anyone that's listening can do this, you know, it removes the most inflammatory foods, but it's designed to do it for 30 days, not in perpetuity for the rest of your life. So gluten, grains, dairy, sugar, soy, alcohol. And back when I originally did Whole30, there was no Whole30 approved like ketchup or mustard. So you had to make your own, which was a big pain in the rear end, to be honest with you. But I think for a lot of women in particular, 
when they get really granular about symptoms, like I tell people, you, you could eat something today and it might be two days later that you feel crummy. It's like building that awareness and you can't measure what you don't track. And to your point about what I find most women struggle with is getting enough protein, eating too many of the wrong types of carbs. And I'm not anti-carb. I want to be really clear. Everyone assumes I kind of exist in this intermittent fasting space that I'm low carb all the time or I'm ketogenic. And I tell people I'm not ketogenic and I carb cycle. So let's put that, we'll put that to rest. And then I find a lot of people are consuming the wrong types of fat. So if you're eating out in restaurants, unless you live in a place like Austin, where most of the restaurants seem to make a really concerted effort to not use seed oils, I haven't seen another US city like that. So if there is another US city, please let me know. But that's the one I always use as an example. Like they do an exemplary job of using alternative oil sources. But you know, most restaurants you're going to, you're just getting laden with seed oils and understanding what seed oils will do. And, and Dr. Kate Shanahan does an amazing job of organizing the research and talking about it, but understanding that seed oils are not benign. Like, yes, if you get it twice a month and you get some seed oils two nights out of an entire month, that is very different than getting them all day long, every day and understanding the interrelationship with seed oil consumption, damage to your mitochondria, to the cellular membrane, all the way up to driving food cravings and insulin resistance. And so I, I think that not to make anyone feel paranoid, but just to build awareness, like read the food labels. You'd be surprised how dairy sneaks into a lot of things. You'd be surprised how much seed oils are in almost every processed food. The number one fat consumed in the United States right now is soybean oil. And that's not the avocados, not the nuts, not the cheese. Actually, soybean oil because it's in so much restaurant foods, processed foods. And so I, I think building the awareness around what you're eating and not mindlessly eating is really important. And, and I think for many individuals, like I have teenagers and they can blow through, you know, two days of calories that I would eat in a single setting, but they're in this massive anabolic phase in their lives. Once you stop growing, you know, vertically, you, you know, you get to a point where you don't want to just keep growing and you don't want to be in this growing phase all the time. And so being cognizant of what you're eating and honoring your body in a way that you want to fuel it with foods that make you feel good. And you want to try to avoid and or limit the foods that make you feel bad. And I think that's a very, it's a very mature perspective. Like sometimes some people will say, oh, that's restrictive. And I was like, no, that's loving yourself enough to identify the foods that feel good in your body and the ones that don't. Like as an example, I am still sensitive to too much fiber. I love cruciferous veggies. I'm like a Brussels sprout fiend. I could eat cabbage three times a day, but my body will let me know like, nope, you overate that fibrous vegetable. And you know, this is what's going to ensue. And so I, there's a very fine line, even with healthy foods. And, and I think each one of us has to determine what works best for us. And so you and I, Amy, meet very likely very similarly, very protein centric. And there might be people out there who do better having a little more vegetables or someone has a, does better. You know, I, I have people in my practice that can eat massive amounts of fiber, no gas, no bloating. They feel great. I have others that eat a little bit and they blow up like a balloon. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it goes back to that bio-individuality piece, like a little bit of experimentation and being open to the possibility that you know, maybe it's not a bad idea if you eat some more prebiotic rich foods or probiotic rich foods before you're grabbing the supplement. And I, I'm a fan of supplements, especially when we can't 
we can't figure out how to get enough of these vital nutrients into our diets, but you know, food-based sources always first, but tracking so that you know, you know, are you getting enough protein? Are you over-consuming carbs? And not bastardizing any one macronutrient. I think that's the other piece. There's we we've gone so far in one direction that people are afraid to eat carbohydrates. I actually did, I think I did a reels like last week, and people were like, wait, I'm confused. Aren't you low carb? And I said, the more insulin sensitive you are, the more carbohydrates you can eat. Both of us are not insulin sensitive. So for those of us that are insulin sensitive, yes, we can have carbs, but it doesn't mean I eat all the carbs. It doesn't mean I'm eating 300 grams of carbohydrate a day. I might do 75, I might do 100, I might do 50. Really depends on how active I am. And so I I think there's that distinction to be made. And, And I have colleagues, as I'm sure you do too, that they will not touch a carbohydrate. They, because they went from, being in circumstances where they were morbidly obese, they're now at a healthy weight. For them, it's very triggering. So they do better with a carnivore-ish diet. And I always say, if that works for you, great. And if you know that your blood markers and blood values look fantastic and you're physically active and you feel good, that's fantastic. But that may not work for everybody. That might be too restrictive. But for them, they need to be that restrictive in order to kind of you know, ensure that they're not falling back into unfortunate patterns that they did before when they were younger. Oh yeah, no, hundred percent. And I'm just like you, I carb cycle, I focus on my protein and, and I'm more insulin sensitive so I can handle some more carbohydrates. But I always say your labs tell us how you should eat really. So if, if you're looking at your labs and you are insulin resistant, you're type two diabetic, then yeah, I mean, we know that carbohydrates induce a a glucose and insulin response. So we're going to get that spike. I mean, that's, that's just basic science. And it's kind of funny when you think back to the 80s, how how do we ever even get into the low fat craze, right? How how do we ever even tell people that, yeah, just go ahead and eat all the carbohydrates you want, but keep the fat down low. It's like we were so misled, but then the argument could be now, well, now we're just swinging the other way and we're bastardizing carbohydrates. It's like, well, okay, yes, that's true. And just like you said, Cynthia, we shouldn't bastardize a macronutrient but you do have to find what's going to work for your body and your body chemistry and and what your labs tell you and how your body responds. So if you are wearing a CGM like Cynthia and I do, and you get a reading of 180 after you eat a sweet potato like I do, maybe that's not the best food or keto cereal. I threw in some keto cereal and I spiked to 200. I was like, wow. Oh yeah, it was crazy, crazy. So well, it, it really is surprising what foods will spike you. And that, again, is is biofeedback. Maybe you yeah. avoid those things. That food doesn't well, love me. It's funny. Plantains. I love plantains. Plantains do not love me. That's That was something that was surprising. But I can eat a sweet potato. I can eat other root vegetables and I'm fine. I can eat fruit and I'm fine. What was surprising to me was I was in London with my son and he wanted to have dessert one night. And so we were at our hotel and I had this, like, they called it a vegan chocolate mousse. And I was like, okay, that's pretty benign. So that's what I had. And do you know the NutriSense registered dietitian messaged me to say what happened to you yesterday? Because my blood sugar went from, you know, like 90 to 150, which means I, and it wasn't even a large portion. There just must've been so much concentrated sugar and it came back down appropriately, but I spiked so high. And so I told her, I was like, I had dessert. She said, you probably don't want to eat. And I said, I ate a steak before I ate the dessert. So you're doing all the things that, you know, glucose goddess will tell us eat some fiber, have some protein, then have the dessert. Nope. 
not for me. And so she said, well, you're clearly like you're insulin sensitive because it came back down very quickly. I said, but I remember looking at it and the whole next day, my blood sugar was trending 20 points higher than it normally did just from one dessert. It was probably a combination of eating it in the evening, going to bed, sleeping while my body was trying to process all this. And then like the whole next day, like watching my blood sugars, I was like, holy cow. I'm sure part of it is the fact I'm at a different life stage than like my teenagers who their glucose disposal is like ridiculously fast, but understanding that there are certain foods that I just, I tell people all the time, like dark chocolate doesn't bother my blood sugar. But I, if I ate something that has flour in it, like if I eat a gluten-free brownie or a piece of cake, I know what's going to happen. And I, do I enjoy these things when, when I eat them on a sporadic occasions? Absolutely. Birthdays, my kids' birthdays, my husband. However, the rest of the time, I'm like, not worth it. Totally not worth it. Because the one thing that I always try to educate my patients and clients about is that when your blood sugar is over 140, you're actually damaging the intimal lining of those vessels. So it is not benign. Like if it happens every once in a while, I don't want anyone to be paranoid. Even with myself, I don't worry if it bumps up. Right. But if that's your baseline all the time, that your blood sugar is buffering 140, 150 all the time, there's a lot of different things that you want to be doing differently to help improve your insulin sensitivity. And, and I remind people all the time, and I know we both talk openly about this. When I start looking at lab values of women in perimenopause and menopause, the differences for those that are on hormone replacement therapy is so disparate. I mean, it is so different helping them understand when I'm looking at their lipids, when I'm looking at their fasting insulin, when I'm looking at their inflammatory markers, it is unbelievable. I took a break from HRT. I was, I've been on progesterone nonstop. I always say I will be on that till the day that I die. Cause it's just, it helps my sleep quality but I was on too much estrogen and a testosterone. And so my provider and I decided we're going to take a break, which I would never recommend you go from taking too much to, to none because you go from having like feeling pretty good to then feeling like you couldn't get off the ground now back on. But the difference in my labs for that period of time that I was off, holy cow, it was unbelievable. And here's the thing. You can look healthy from the outside. This is the problem is that we make assumptions that if you're physically fit and you look healthy from the outside that your inflammatory markers, your lipids all look good. And what happened was my inflammatory markers went haywire. My lipids went haywire, mostly my LDL. But then, you know, you go down the rabbit hole looking at particle size and then you're looking at your APOB and you're looking at LP little a. And I just, I remember looking at Aaron, I was like, these look terrible. Like, and I was like, I'm objectively telling you that if this were my patient, I would say you need to be on medication. Right. And so I, I think that for everyone listening, there's no judgment, whatever decision you make is the right decision between you and your healthcare practitioner, but holy cow, if anyone thinks you can navigate those years and not give some consideration to what's going on, the degree of inflammation, oxidative stress, and the disease state that is menopause, let's be clear, mm -hmm. you know, Dr. Amy Killen said to me, I think of menopause as a disease state. And I always give her credit now for saying that because it brings up a really really good point about the fact that so many things change as you are losing estrogen in your body. And for me, that really like shifted my focus to realizing like you can be sleeping, eating the right foods, exercising, you're a healthy weight. And if you're that inflamed internally, you got to quiet and buffer that inflammation. And so I, I hope perhaps this starts conversations between women that are listening with their healthcare practitioners, you know, finding providers that are going to be able to counsel them on the risks and benefits. And that's really what it comes down to is 
having that conversation and saying, for me personally, what are the risks and what are the benefits of being on HRT? And for some people, it could be a combination about 25 to 30% of women still make plenty of testosterone in menopause. I'm not one of them. Right. <laughs> so um, I, I have, I'm on the full milieu. I'm on progesterone, estradiol, I'm on testosterone, I take DHEA and my pregnenolone was low. Mm -hmm. So pregnenolone is really important for memory. So if anyone's listening and they're like, I've never heard of this hormone, you can get it tested by your healthcare practitioner. You want those values above 50. Above 50 is where you get memory support. And so I'm now supplementing with pregnenolone. And so we had this whole conversation where I was like, these are the things I need you to draw. And so sure enough, my pregnant, I, I felt like my pregnenolone might've been low. And sure enough, it was. And so I now take pregnenolone and pregnenolone and DHEA are different that there's over-the-counter supplements that you can take, whereas the rest of them have to be prescribed and testosterone is a controlled substance. And we could have a whole tangential conversation about testosterone, right? But I, I think for each person, it's, you know, get tested, figure out what you need. What are your symptoms? What's your family history? What are your concerns? I think for probably you and I, I would imagine bone health is huge. Heart health is huge. Brain health is huge. You know, all those things I think about, I, I'm, I'm watching my mother's generation who all got taken off of HRT when I was finishing graduate school. And they, from what we knew from the Women's Health Initiative, we thought we were making good decisions for our patients. And I'm watching them lose cognitive function. And each one of them has said to me, please do better. Please, your generation needs to help women. And so I take this really seriously, as I know you do too helping women be their own best advocates. I mean, I have women in my practice who are 60 years old who are 10 years in the menopause and they have practitioners saying that, oh, it doesn't matter now. You're too far, you're too far gone. And these are active, healthy women. Yeah. And I said, we just need you to find the right person so you can get the care that you deserve to have. You know, and I, I just, I don't know. It, I, I never thought, never knew that this would be the space that I would be speaking to, but I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be able to help women navigate making good choices for themselves. Isn't that really what it's all about? Like knowledge is power and every woman listening should be able to decide for themselves. Like here's the cost benefit, what works for you, what resonates with you intrinsically. I think if people choose not to take HRT, I want them to understand the, the risks and benefits just as much as the women taking HRT. So there's no judgment. It's just make the best decision and understand the ramifications of your choices. Absolutely. And I mean, I love HRT. Just like you said, it, it when you were on it before you just took it out to see what would happen, all of your numbers <laughs> looked great. You know, they look great. So the HRT was doing something. You didn't need a statin to control your LDL. You didn't need you know, an antidepressant if you started getting down and out, although the progesterone helps with that. Mm -hmm. But you were using HRT and you mentioned some supplements. So I do want to I want to piggyback off that pregnenolone mm -hmm. and DHEA because I love those for supplements mm -hmm. too. I love that they're over the counter, but women do have to know that they are they are hormones. They act yep. as, they are hormones, even though they're over the counter. But there are some other supplements that we can start incorporating in to help treat the symptoms of perimenopause, menopause. So yes, I'm all for HRT, just like Cynthia said, you know, have that discussion, go over your, the pros and cons, go over your risks. But what we see in the literature now, as compared to the Women's Health Initiative study, is that in general, for most people, HRT, bioidentical BHRT is very, very safe and actually can protect your bone, your brain, your heart, your, your breasts. 
it, it's very protective against the disease states of aging, because like you said, menopause is a disease state. And I love that. Let's go into, oh gosh, you mentioned so many different symptoms. Where do I want to start? Let's start with the brain because you're right. I'm yeah. very passionate about that. My mom had Alzheimer's, of course was on. I remember when she was on estrogen and got pulled off and stopped taking it. So there are some things outside of pregnenolone that we can do for our brain. And I know you've talked about the alpha GPC. Would that be your first go-to for memory and cognition? Yeah. And so I I guess I I look at things in a very stack wise approach because what I find is first and foremost, we got to get people sleeping. So how do we get you sleeping? And, And this is where I will pull in things like myo inositol, which is you look up myo inositol, there's a bunch of indications. It can help with blood sugar. It can help with sleep architecture. It can help with sleep duration and onset. It can help with mood. I had Dr. Rowe on talking about how she uses it with her pediatric population. And there's solid research in these areas. PCOS, I mean, it's it metabolic syndrome. So for me, I'm always the guinea pig. Like I'm the N of one. I try something and I'm like, hmm, that worked really well for me. So I'm going to start talking about it. So Myo-inositol is usually one of those frontline things to help with sleep. I always say, obviously, good sleep hygiene, which are things I'm sure you talk about, cold, dark room. You know, don't be on electronics all the time. Don't eat right before bed. Don't go and exercise an hour before bed. I mean, your your body's going to have uh, trouble kind of changing gears. So myo-inositol in particular is pretty gentle, but helps people relax, helps people fall asleep. I'm at a point now where I know how to dose it based on symptoms. So that's usually a step one to help with sleep dialing in on sleep. And we know progesterone helps with sleep onset, estradiol or you know, estrogen derivatives can be very helpful for sleep duration. I also think that when we're talking about sleep, you know, creatine, which people think about for muscles, but there's a lot of solid research talking about mood as well as helping with sleep architecture. I've had people tell me, I had no idea that taking creatine was going to be helpful for helping me sleep. So sleep first to help with cognition, then moving on to cognition, because so many of us are addicted to caffeine. You know, we don't get good quality sleep. And so what do we do when we get up in the morning? We're slamming fatty coffees or coffee or lots of tea, you know, herba mate. I think about all the people that are just so over caffeinated. And for me, I'm, I actually metabolize caffeine pretty well. Like I'm not one of those people that gets jittery. Admittedly, I've never been a coffee drinker, but I will drink green tea for the for the benefits. And I jokingly tell my team, I brew it, I ice it, I use a straw, I drink it. And that's kind of my means to an end. I'm like, okay, I know it's good polyphenol content, lots of you know fat oxidation, all these good things. But what I came to find was I wanted something that had good research. It talked about brain health and cognition. And so alpha GPC was something I kind of stumbled upon, started kind of going down a rabbit hole, reading about the research, how it helps with acetylcholine in the brain, how it can be helpful with these precursors, and for me, the difference between days when I don't take out the GPC in the morning and when I don't, I, it's a distinguishable, I feel like someone turns my brain on, like it's fully 100% on in a way that's not stimulating because that's one of the issues is that some people are slow metabolizers of caffeine and they're consuming caffeine because their sleep quality is not where they want it to be, or they just feel like they need energy or they need focus or they need concentration. And so they're over caffeinating. And this is an alternative to that. And so for me, it was really interesting that as I started slightly, I always say stacking, that's kind of one of my catchphrases for supplements. I started stacking things to see what makes my brain feel like it's hundred percent engaged. That's alpha GPC. What helps me with sleep duration, onset, sleep architecture, that would be not just myo and and creatine, but 
melatonin. And I don't know if you've talked a lot about melatonin. People always think about it as a sleep hormone, but I remind them we make less of it as we age. That's number one, but it's also a master antioxidant. And we just talked about how menopause is this inflammatory state, unless you're on you know, HRT and you're being diligent about targeted supplementations and nutrition and all these other things. And so all these supplements really speak to increasing ATP. So we're really at a cellular level, helping the mitochondria, kind of stoking that ATP. And ATP is this energy molecule that's designed to give us energy and helping people understand that by the time we're 40, our mitochondria are not as vibrant as they were at 20. And some degree of mitochondrial dysfunction is what contributes to all these chronic diseases that we see. And so I think for many people, it's these limiting beliefs that with the aging process, we're going to be tired, we're going to be achy, uh, we're going to have poor quality sleep, we're going to gain weight, we're going to be on blood pressure medicines, we're going to be on diabetes medications, we're going to all need lipid lowering agents, we're all going to deal with cognitive health problems, that doesn't have to be the case. And so for me, looking at all the research and coming from like a very researched application perspective has allowed me to be very... I guess, selective about the things that much like I know you are with your supplementation, just things that I know most people can't get enough from their diet. That's creatine because people will say, I'm just going to eat more steak. And I'm like, it's actually impossible to get enough creatine monohydrate in your diet, but the animal-based protein is great. But women, as an example, have 70 to 80% less endogenous stores of creatine, which means depending on where we are in life stage, depending on where we are in our menstrual cycle, we actually need more than men. The other thing that's really interesting, and there's some new research that's coming out that's showing creatine monohydrate is particularly helpful for bone, bone health. And, uh-huh. and I know that's as someone who's osteopenic already, some of that is genetically mediated. Dang, I do everything I can to support my bone health. I actually have a researcher coming on the podcast next month and he just does creatine research. And he kind of shared this research with me. And I was like, I can't thank you because I couldn't talk about it because I didn't have enough good research to talk about bone health. But now we know that's another benefit of utilizing creatine. So not just for muscle, also for mood, also for sleep. And then one thing about myo-inositol that I think is particularly helpful, we're talking about how most people are no longer metabolically healthy in perimenopause and menopause. Estimates are 78% of the population are metabolically healthy coming out of the pandemic. We know that myo-inositol helps with blood sugar sensitive, insulin sensitivity. So if you are prone to PCOS or you've ever been diagnosed If you have been told you have metabolic syndrome, it's a very gentle way to help with blood sugar regulation. You know, berberine is a great supplement. Berberine is a little bit stronger. It's kind of like hitting it with a sledgehammer. And for a lot of people, it can be limiting because it also has these potent antimicrobial benefits in the gut. Like I can't tolerate berberine. It messes my gut up and not, it's not a pleasant experience. So I always tell people, this is a little bit more gentle, but is equally efficacious. And it has so many other benefits. And so I think when we're thinking about stacking supplements, talking about supplements, I'm a huge proponent of supplements that have multiple uses. So it's not just, I take one for sleep and I take one for blood sugar and I take one for, you know, brain health and cognition, you know, to me, the greatest benefit is derived when we can be very targeted to allow things to stack. And then they potentiate the benefits for one another. And that to me is you know, it's more cost-effective, it's sanity saving. I mean, how many listeners, I I know it happens with my own. They're like, I don't, I feel like there's so many options. I don't know what to take. And so helping people get really granular about what specifically do you need? You know, do you need a multivitamin because you don't need a great diet? 
Do you need sleep support, which I'm always a proponent of? And jokingly, I tell people all the time that I'll be taking a sleep stack for the rest of my life, but I'm always tweaking it. I'm always playing around with it to see, you know, what is most effective for me at that given point in time. But those are the things that I think I've found the greatest benefit from and the most applicability to a variety of different concerns. I love stacking the myonositol with the berberine too. When you have someone that is really, I mean, they're basically walking the line of diabetes, if not crossing over into it. I mean, you know that it's reversible. They're not bad enough to go on metformin or any kind of drug for it, but you stack that berberine and the myonositol, and then that really hits their blood sugar nicely. But I, I also agree with you, the people that can't take the berberine, oh, inositol is beautiful for that. Absolutely yeah. beautiful. Absolutely. And I think it's funny, you know, I was prescribed berberine probably five or six years ago, because I in all my travels, I picked up a parasite. This is like a running joke. I'm the one when my husband and I travel, I'm the one that picks up the bugs. And so we went home and my provider was like berberine. And within a week, I started waking up drenched in sweats. And I was like, what in the world is going on? And then I started with like all these digestive symptoms. And so she said, for you, it's dropping your blood sugar. Number one, that's why you're waking up sweating. Uh, Cause I didn't normally sweat. And then number two, it's gotten these really potent antimicrobial impact. And so for some people, I'm one of them. Jokingly, my husband always says like, you know, Darwinian, you would have been the person that would have died off from some type of gastric issue, you know, a hundred thousand years ago, but kind of looking at this bioindividuality piece and saying, yes, I have people, I can give them a thousand milligrams of berberine, or I can give them a thousand milligrams of metformin or glucophage, and they have no digestive effects. If I did that, it would drop my blood sugar and I would be, you know, I would be very unhappy with my digestion. Uh, so I think that a lot of it is a little bit of trial and error and figuring out what works best. And I, I love that there are so many options now that we don't necessarily have to go right to prescriptive medication. In some instances, maybe you can turn the ship around. I know right now GLP-1s are really popular and uh, to a point that I feel like we field questions almost on a daily basis. And I always say there's a place for a lot of these medications, I don't prescribe GLP ones. I leave that to my colleagues to do, but I think that there's a lot of options if, before we even need to get there. But I do think there are people that need that next level of prescriptive authority to be able to dial in on whatever metabolic syndrome, metabolic derangement they're dealing with. And there are certainly people who, you know, for whatever reason, whether it's a like a domino effect, and and I think for a lot of people coming out of the pandemic, people that were just like. I had good habits. I was really doing well. Then the pandemic happened. I was isolated. I couldn't see my friends, my loved ones, or I lost my job. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, all of us have maladaptive coping mechanisms, some more significant than others. But for some people, eating was a pleasure that they kind of indulged during that time period because they weren't able to do a lot of other things. Right. Absolutely. I want to kind of stay on the creatine because I said this on your podcast. It's one of the oldest, most researched supplements out there. I remember back in the 90s, my sister, my dad, and I were doing the EAS Body for Life contest. I don't know if you remember that, but- I do, I do. I love it that you guys did that all together. Oh my gosh, so so much fun. And that really kind of kickstarted their health journey. And then it kickstarted me into doing competitions, whether that's good or bad, right? But But creatine, I remember taking creatine. And my sister is a geriatric physician and she was looking up creatine at the time because she wanted to make sure we weren't going to take anything that was harmful. And I remember back then she told us that there's no side effects with this. 
there's literally nothing but benefits. And this is literally like 1999, 1998, something like that. No, no side effects whatsoever, nothing but benefits. And now we're even seeing, like you mentioned, the bone protection with creatine. Obviously, it's going to help with sarcopenia, loss of muscle as we age. So that's really huge for women. But I still think that the general population thinks of creatine connected with sports supplements because EAS was a kind of more geared toward weightlifting, bodybuilding, competing, that kind of thing. It was in the GNCs where your average 45-year-old menopausal woman is not going to walk into, not back then, walk into a GNC and, and buy something because she's not hitting the gym and throwing around heavy weights. But creatine is so much more and it is beneficial for everyone, every woman. So let's go into a little bit more of the benefits of creatine and what you yeah. said. Yeah. And I, I totally agree with you. I mean, I had that bias, you know, being a clinician in the nineties and early two thousands, that it was just a, a gym bro supplement. And the irony is we have a mutual friend who said to me a couple of years ago, she said, I bet you're not eating enough protein. This is Gabrielle Lyon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the next thing she said, you need to start taking creatine. And I kind of was like, okay, well, yeah, yeah, maybe. And so sure enough, probably six months later, I did actually start creatine and understanding how creatine, like the mechanism of action. So it's creatine monohydrate. So it's hydrating your muscles, but understanding that a lot of the concerns about creatine were really unfounded. It was in, in kind of interspersed with gym culture where people are using massive doses, not three to five grams a day. They were using 20, 30, 40 grams along mm. with anabolic steroids, very different population. You know, it's one of the most well-researched well-regarded ergogenic aids that's out there. And so when we talk about benefits, I think about muscle strength. I think about, you know, being able to do more intense exercise in the gym. I think about the mood benefits and there's good research talking about improvement in mood disorders. There's also talk about sleep architecture that it actually helps with sleep architecture at night. I think about the fact that it helps with memory and some cognition. So it also has these memory and cognition benefits and understanding that again, each one of these things, like most supplements are working at a cellular level. So they're increasing ATP. That's one of the mechanisms of actions that allows you to lift more intensely, heavier, have more strength gains. And I think I was reading last night that sarcopenia, this muscle loss with aging is one to 2% per year after the age of 40. So maybe that doesn't sound like a lot, but that starts to add up. So by the time you're 50, this loss of strength really starts to accelerate if you're not actively working against it. And like, as an example, I, I take Pilates and, and solid core, like I like to shake things up. And I do that more for posterior chain work. And just to quite frankly, I'm almost like a, a, a dog that needs to be challenged, like challenged in a different way when you're moving in different time and space. And, and I was reflecting on the fact that most women in this Pilates class, doesn't matter which class I take, are very, very thin and sarcopenic. Mm -hmm. They may be flexible and flexibility is important, right? But they do not look like they are maintaining muscle mass. And that is a concern. And so for me, when I think about the most important concept to understand as an aging woman is that maintaining muscle mass and maintaining strength is critically important, not just for metabolic health, insulin sensitivity, but locomotion, being able to not fall after you, if you trip, being able to get out of a chair, Amy, I had so many patients in cardiology that were in their fifties that they would have a bedside commode and I would watch them barely 
their quadricep muscles were so deconditioned and so weakened that they could barely get themselves off a bedside commode. And I would think, how did they function at home? If they're this weak now, and, and granted, you lose a lot of strength and you lose a lot of muscle being in a hospital bed, but the understanding that we are designed as human beings to be physically active throughout our lifetimes. And so to me, creatine is such an easy thing. Like for me, I put it in my water with a squeeze of lemon. Like I don't have to put it in a shake. People, people make it so complicated. I got to put it in a shake. And I always say like my product just dissolves effortlessly into the water. So you don't even know it's there. My teenagers take it. My husband takes it. In fact, I'm always telling my, I, my mother gets regular. I always send her bags of creatine. I'm like you and Bob, my stepfather need to take it every day. And so you were mentioning like, are there side effects? The only thing that I've noticed, obviously, if we understand the mechanism of action, that we are hydrating the muscles, the potential exists that you might get a little bloating, but understanding it's water weight. It's not that you've gained five pounds. And so there've been a couple of people who've said, oh, I just feel like I got a little puffy. I'm like, dose it every other day or decrease the dose. And then that usually settles itself out. But at three grams a day for women, five grams a day for men or vegetarians or vegans who need more creatine because they're not having animal-based protein. Yep. It's a very easy to tolerate supplement and one that people can take throughout their lifetime. If my grandmother was still alive, I'd be encouraging her to take it. But I think for many people, they don't understand that unbeknownst to us in our forties, we're losing muscle mass. And I always use the example of, you know, looking at a filet versus a ribeye. And so the filet is young muscle tissue and the ribeye, although delicious is old, is like, is muscle tissue that's been infiltrated by fat. Yep. And that's, what's actually happening to our muscles if we are not actively working against it. And what's interesting to me is I think I was probably 43, 44. And I started noticing my hunger was changing. I wasn't as hungry. And I remember trying to figure out, is this an estrogen issue? Is this something going on with my muscles? And I really do think it's the physiologic changes that are occurring because women will say, oh, I don't need to eat more than one meal a day and helping them understand, okay, well, if you went out and you had too much to eat or you went on vacation, you come home, you want to have one meal a day, probably not a big deal, but under eating protein is exacerbating that sarcopenic tendency. And so sometimes that's triggering when I say to people, there's no way you can get enough protein in one meal out of the day. Maybe if you're a bodybuilder and you can just shuttle 200 grams of protein into your body, but I can't do that. No. And so I think it's important for people to understand there's things that we can do to help maintain muscle mass and this and lifting heavy weights or lifting weights in general is definitely a way to go about doing that. And then the other piece of it, as we've kind of touched on, HRT is definitely helpful. Like I can tell, like I got to a point where I said, I need some testosterone for a variety of reasons, but I can definitely tell because it's so much harder to build muscle. And I'm definitely stimulating muscle protein synthesis with my nutrition and lifting heavy. And I'm looking in the mirror going, I just look kind of skinny and that's not what I want. So helping people understand that there's multiple ways to kind of attack this, but creatine can be a really integral way to address this in a proactive manner in a really well-tolerated manner. And you absolutely can put on muscle mm -hmm. in perimenopause and menopause. I've often mentioned that I feel and look better now and have more muscle shape and definition now than I did in my 20s when I was competing. And, and when I had to present, you know, the best, most athletic, streamlined look on stage. But I think now I'm more focused on lifting heavy, do less to really no cardio, unless my heart rate gets up when I'm throwing around the heavy weights, really focus on the protein, taking the creatine, getting the good sleep, taking the things that help me sleep, 
being on BHRT, having my testosterone at an optimal level, all of that works together that yes, I have absolutely put on muscle. Oh, I, I saw the photos on social media. You absolutely have. And it, and it's funny because I think there's this duality of being a middle-aged person and how to show up authentically on social media. And I always say, there's no judgment. If you want to show up in a bikini and rock your bikini, knock yourself out. If you want to show up in your workout stuff and you want to you know, show how you, I think it's awesome. But it, it's funny how, you know, trying to find this like happy medium of like showing up and, and being authentic but then making sure you're honoring, like, I'm a total introvert. So people always want, like, can't you take some video in the gym? And I'm like, the gym is like my Zen happy place. Yes. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. one of these days, yes, I'm going to have my introverted husband follow me around the gym so you can see what I do. But I think for each one of us, it's finding like, what do you like doing? And, and I think, you know, for me, it's some degree of variety. Like I like lifting. I do zone two. I was doing a video yesterday because someone was asking like, why do you do Pilates? And I was trying to talk about posterior chain work. Like I have overdeveloped quadriceps and underdeveloped hamstrings. I've always been that way. I was a runner in high school. And I think most people have overdeveloped quadriceps and underdeveloped hamstrings. Like that's that part of that posterior chain work. And, you know, explaining that like my husband, who's this jujitsu guy, although I'm not laughing at him, but he just recently got his nose fractured doing jujitsu as a grown ass man and had to, cause his nose was so displaced. He had to have it fixed. He did not have rhinoplasty. They just put the bone back in place. Oh um, and talking to him, um, I get him doing solid core with me and he always has to work on his core. And it's funny to watch both of us. We're probably like the oldest people in class, but I'm like, I'm like a dog with a bone. Like I need to be moving my body in different ways. It's super challenging. Like it's so deceptively challenging. And that's part of that, like a little bit of vigor. You got to shake things up. You can't do the same things all the time. And so that is important for me personally. And I, I do think for me, like the icing on the cake is the Pilates and the solid core, like everything else is foundational and critically important, but these are things that challenge me mentally and physically. And so I like to lean into them. Sometimes people are like, why do you want to do that? I'm like, I don't know. It's become this, like we're almost empty nesters and finding things we can do together without the teenagers who aren't up yet. Like we go and do go to workouts and they're still sleeping like most of the morning. And so it's humorous that it's worked out this way. But I think everyone has to find the activities, the things they enjoy doing and just make sure you're doing them consistently. You do. Totally. And yeah, for the record, you're never going to see me on social in a bikini, just for all the listeners out there that think that that might happen. It's not um, the, <laughs> the only reason I did that. And that, that was a big stretch for me, Cynthia. That was a big you stretch. Too. But you I was great. just pumped up. I was like, damn, I have definition. Like I need to take a picture of this because it's possible. And I didn't even right. have that kind of definition two years ago. This is all from really honing in on all the things that I just said and, and, and realizing, listen, I am getting older. I need to get serious about this. Like this isn't a game anymore. This is longevity. This is all the things that you just talked about from protection of bone to protection of heart. I mean, it's everything. It's not just aesthetics anymore. Once yeah. you go into perimenopause and menopause, you're playing the long game now. It's not just about your looks. Although yeah. the looks, yes, you get that little added benefit when you're using BHRT, when you're lifting heavy, when you're doing the protein, when you're sleeping, when you're taking the cream, you get those benefits aesthetically, but you're doing so much more internally. 
Yeah. And I think, you know, the other thing that I would say that I, I think is so important for middle-aged women is this like sense of peace with where you are in time and space. Like I tell people all the time, as our bodies are losing estrogen and perimenopause, it is a physiologic response that we stop people-pleasing behavior. Like I was the biggest people pleaser. I grew up in a lot of trauma. And for me, it was like, I wanted everyone to love me and I wanted everyone to love me at work. And I wanted everyone to be happy all the time. And now, I mean, my husband and my kids, sometimes they're like, mom. And I'm just like, no, I'm just very assertive. I'm very, I mean, there's no drama, but if I don't, if I don't like something, I tell people. And that is the social conditioning that women are supposed to just accept things. Like I was having a discussion slash argument with the compounding pharmacy. And my son was like, oh my God, I can't believe you spoke to that woman. And I said, I just, I, I just said, I don't understand. <laughs> it's like, I don't understand. This doesn't make sense. And he was like, you really were being rude. And I said, no, I think I was being direct. And I said, sometimes people are not accustomed to women being direct. And I said, I was not disrespectful. I was thank you and please. And I appreciate that. And, you know, making sure that I was making it very clear that I was appreciative of what they were doing. But I was like, no, no, that doesn't work for me. And so understanding that as we're losing estrogen, we are oftentimes losing those people pleasing tendencies and the desire to feel like you have to impress people. Like I lived in a different part of my state and we relocated during the pandemic. And I said, our mental health benefits have been exponential because we now live in an area where people are really, really nice and down to earth. I mean, everyone is just that way and polite and they, you know, no one's trying to run you off the road and people are not trying to impress you constantly. And our other environment was totally the antithesis of that. And I remember when we put our house on the market and sold it, people were in my DM saying, I wish we could do what you're doing. And I'm like, but you can. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so, you know, de further defining what is acceptable, what is not, what is important to you, what is not. And that can change. It doesn't have to be static. And I think it's really, in many ways, I, I think that it's incredibly validating. And it's also incredibly freeing to be in this stage of life where you don't feel like you have to be anyone other than who you really are. I, I tell this story all the time and I'll tell it again and we'll put a little E next to it on the on the podcast. But I had a Buddhist client years ago in my 30s. And she told me, she said, once you hit 50, all your fuck bucks are spent and you will look <laughs> at life in a whole new light. And she was right. I mean, I'm still only 49. I'm cresting into 50. But the last couple of years, just like you said, have been so freeing. Now, is that a combination of age? Yes. And me taking care of myself and doing the right things in perimenopause, menopause transition? I think it is. I think it's a combination because I don't have the brain fog. I don't have the hot flashes. I don't have the symptoms that I'm dealing with. And thank God. So that's not stealing my, my life and my drive and my mood. So yeah, I can pass through life and, and just not really care about the things that I used to care about. So she was uh, dead on, dead on. I, I love <laughs> I love her, her expression. I think when I reflect back on, so we're celebrating 20 years of marriage in September. And I was saying, oh my gosh, when I think back to 10 years ago, just how, you know, I was so influenced by like the social groups I was in and the pressure to, you know, everyone seemed like they all wanted to be doing the same things and buying the same things and vacation, the same things. And it was almost a blessing that I worked. Most of the women didn't because I would go to work three days a week and I would, you know, be intellectually stimulated. And I was, you know, very focused on work. And then I would come home and take care of my kids. And my husband was usually traveling all the time. I just didn't have the bandwidth to worry about 
a lot of the concerns that some of these women, and it was more like materialistic stuff. Let me be clear. It wasn't like they were sitting around and having like a kumbaya moment over existentialism, but you know, on a lot of different levels, I think that it's just shown me the, the emotional growth I've made over the last, you know, 10, 15 years, and then just feeling very comfortable with where I am in time and space and not feeling like I have to be anywhere else doing anything else. I'm exactly where I'm meant to be. You know, we talk a lot about this, like a sidebar conversations about we're exactly where we're supposed to be and without question. So it's very, very freeing. Yeah, I agree. Well, Cynthia, I mean, you've you've given the ladies listening so many things, so many things to think about. I mean, from sleep to protein to nutrition to all the supplements. And then you you carry all the supplements that we talked about on your store. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well so they can grab them there. But yeah, I mean, just thank you. Thank you for coming on. And tell us, what, do, what are you doing now? You're building a whole new <laughs> YouTube. I mean, this is going to be great for everyone listening for information. Yeah. So we are rebranding the YouTube channel. And this has been something I've wanted to do all year. It just had to be when I got to the point I had the bandwidth. And so that should be launching, relaunching later this month. We'll have three days a week of content, really focused on weight loss, nutrition, and intermittent fasting, metabolic health, and you know, providing science-based strategies. So I'm very science-centric, but I always say that I'm proud of my, my medical training and, and it's time to start really utilizing that and helping people understand like this is the study where this information comes from take this to your doctor take this to your provider and really distilling the science and making it actionable and making it presentable and you know ultimately i just want people to live their best lives and i tell everyone i did everything wrong in early perimenopause i didn't know any better and the only way to help other people not make the same mistakes is to a number one be transparent Number two, talk about these things. And both you and I have these incredible platforms that we can do that on and then encourage women to share their stories. I think that that more than anything else, there's still a great deal of shame about the aging process. There are women who don't even want to say they're in menopause. They don't want to say they take HRT. I don't know why. I mean, to me, I think perimenopause was a bumpy ride, at least the beginning and the middle of it. And then towards the end, once I figured out all the lifestyle things that I really needed to dial in it was a pretty easy transition. And so I, I think that um, people shouldn't fear it. And I, I don't think people should fear aging in, in general. And that's something I say with love. I'm 52. I just had a birthday. And so I tell people all the time, maybe 40 was traumatic for me. But like after that, I was just like, eh, it's no big deal. And then I hit 50 and that wasn't such a big deal. So I think so much of it's mindset and perspectives and you know, I tell everyone, I'm like, I'm happy to be an outlier, but I would love to have a hell of a lot more people that are living their best lives in middle age and not feeling like they're, you know, they're not. Um, that doesn't have to be your destiny. Well, you're out there giving them hope and giving them the information to do so. So we love that. So thank you so much. Thank you again for coming on. And this was a fantastic conversation. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.